0: Welcome, 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 stand and welcome, hello, good
1: evening and welcome,
2: to Discovery. Discovery, Discovery, Welcome to Discovery, Discovery, (gasps) Discovery, Discovery, Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space,
0: this may all be happening right now.
1: Now to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours, and sounds like this,
3: Discovery.
4: And hello and welcome to the finest half hour of science radio in the known universe, Discovery. I'm Helen Sim. On this edition, we'll be hearing from an astronomer in Tassie about the biggest bangs in the universe. We'll go touring the Lucas Heights nuclear reactor with Ian Wolfe. And along the way, we'll hear why it's been a bad week for Australian patents. But first up, here's the news with Marion Carruthers.
1: Scientist reports that sporting teams playing in the colour red have an unfair advantage. Apparently, wearing red helps to improve their game relative to their opponents. Now, Russell Hill and Robert Burton of Durham University in the UK analyse four Olympic sports, boxing, taekwondo, and the spandex sports of Greco-Roman wrestling and freestyle wrestling. In none of these sports do athletes wear national colours. Rather, they're randomly allocated either red or blue, sometimes white. In 441 bouts, red won the most in each sport, about 60% of the time. Not only that, the scientists also looked at the effect the colour red had on both closely matched contests and the pushover contests. For the close encounters, wearing red was a real advantage. But for the pushovers, the colours were evenly matched, Robert Burton told New Scientist magazine, If you're rubbish, a red shirt won't help you from losing. Hill and Burton surmise the benefit of red. red uniforms is tied to evolutionary psychology. Are you getting enough exercise? Gillian Swan from Brunel University in London has developed a sports shoe that can help work out if the wearer has walked enough steps to deserve TV time. The shoes contain an electronic sensor and computer chip to detect and record how many steps have been made that day. This information is transmitted to a receiver connected to the TV, which then decides how much viewing time the wearer deserves. <clears throat> Once the permitted TV viewing allowance is reached, the TV automatically switches off. Ms Swan aims her invention at, at uh, combating childhood obesity. Health experts suggest that children take at least 12,000 steps per day and watch a maximum of two hours television per day. So doing the math, every 100 steps earns the kid one minute of TV time. Sleep accounts for a third of our lives and is crucial in helping rejuvenate and fix our bodies. Many people find lack of sleep results in concentration problems and ability to cope with stress. As many as 24% of adults suffer from sleep disordered breathing, most commonly stopping breathing for about 15 seconds every few minutes, hundreds of times a night. Besides feeling rotten, drowsy and exhausted the next day, people with sleep apnea face high blood pressure and risk heart attacks and stroke. But exactly how does disruption in oxygen cause a cardiovascular response? They've never really worked it out for sure. And in any case, people in high altitude can adapt to low oxygen environments without developing hypertension. So what's going on with sleep apnea? Well, Scientific American reports that this is due to differences in the carotid body. Yep, the question on everyone's lips, what's that? It's a tissue that senses oxygen and is located at the, in the main artery in the neck. Under normal circumstances, when oxygen drops, the body tells the nervous system to raise the blood pressure to pump more, oxy- to pump more blood around to compensate. The messages for these are, are given through oxygen-free radicals. But when oxygen drops repeatedly, the radicals overwhelm the body so much, so when, even when oxygen is normal, blood pressure continues to rise. Case Western Reserve University in the US hopes that this will help devise a new treatment for sleep apnea, perhaps with taking a humble antioxidant vitamin supplement every day. Presently, sufferers have to wear an ugly face mask to bed, very romantic, that maintains positive airway pressure to prevent soft tissues of the upper airway from, rem- from narrowing and collapsing.
4: Well, there are a fair few astronomers in this wide brown land, and we've found one of the southernmost who might be willing to give us a regular update for what's happening out there in the universe. Dr Melanie Johnston-Hollett is a lecturer at the University of Tasmania, and this week apparently some very exciting things have been happening in space, or at least NASA is excited about them, and their development's to do with the biggest bangs in the universe, which are called gamma-ray bursts. So... Melanie, what's it all about?
0: Oh, hello, Helen. Thank you for having me on the program. Um, yes, this week astronomers are fairly excited about a particular gamma-ray burst that uh, went off uh, on the 10th of May. Whoa,
4: just stop there for a minute. What, what is a gamma-ray burst?
0: Well, a gamma-ray burst is uh, a particularly energetic but rather short-lived outburst of particles. And for a long time they were quite mysterious. They were actually first discovered by military satellites in the 60s but they were classified and so we didn't find out about them until the 70s but then it took a period of about 20 years before we had any clue where these energetic particles were actually coming from and um, now we know that they come from various different sources but uh, one type of source that they can come from are the generation of black holes via supernova explosions and uh, this is the so-called long period gamma ray bursts ones that have these intense bursts for relatively long amounts of time, which is, when I say long, I mean after longer than 10 seconds.
4: Right, but we are talking big amounts of energy here and huge pretty, pretty amounts violent. Of energy.
0: Yes, very, very violent interactions. So a lot of, I mean, people understand that the creation of a black hole through a supernova explosion is a rather violent event. So yes, we can generate huge amounts of energy and we see these through this uh, gamma ray bursts.
4: And these are not rare events, are they? Or are they.? No, do, do, do astronomers wait their whole lives in hope of seeing one?
0: Uh, particular types of ones, maybe. But no, these events happen quite regularly, and there's now quite a lot of um, infrastructure in place for us to look at them very quickly. One of the things that we have at the moment is a satellite which is called SWIFT, which is devoted to detecting these things and then very quickly positioning itself to capture the particles and other wavelength bands, such as X ray. And NASA has a future mission planned called GLAST, the Gamma-Ray Large, Large Area Sorry Telescope, and that will be dedicated entirely to looking for gamma-ray bursts, and that's going up next year. So
4: GLAST is looking for blasts.
0: It is, yes. Oh. <laughs> um, but the one that happened last week that's got astronomers so very excited is a so-called uh, short-period gamma-ray burst, which is where you have a very short outburst of these intense particles. And this was then followed by an optical flash and this optical flash was detected very quickly by ground-based optical telescopes and what this tells us is that we're seeing the creation of a black hole through the death of two neutron stars and neutron stars are, of course are very massive sorry very dense stars and these two are spiraling into one another and when they collide a black hole is created and all of this energy is released and this is the first time such an event has been seen. It's been predicted by theory that neutron stars would collide into each other through this in-spiral process and black holes would be formed but astronomers are very excited because now we've seen the gamma ray burst followed by the optical flash and so here we have seen the birth of a black hole in this, in this fashion.
4: Wow. Um, but it is still only theory. I mean, other, you couldn't tell just from the fact that you get a bunch of gamma rays and then a, a short burst of light that you seeing colliding black holes
0: well i mean a lot of the stuff that we do is all still a theory but one thing that we can do and will happen in the future is that we can not only look for these things in the electromagnetic spectrum so looking through various wave bands of light but we hope to be able to detect them through the gravitational effect of the in spiral and the creation of the black hole and this will be done through gravitational wave uh, detectors so interferometers And we're currently in the process of building these things to try and detect this neutron star-neutron star collision. And this is the most uh, extreme gravitational event that we can detect, and hopefully in in a few years' time we'll have not only the electromagnetic information from the gamma rays and the optical flash, but the distortion of space-time from the creation of this black hole to go with it, which we'll detect with instruments such as LIGO, which is a uh, large interferometer being... uh, it's almost completed now in the US.
4: Right. So these are not, you know, sort of backyard, pissy little black holes. These are really quite massive things if you're expecting to see them
0: well, distorting
4: space-time. Is that right? Or
0: No, actually, neutron star, neutron star uh, collisions lead to what astronomers consider to be fairly low-mass black holes. Um, It's not like a supermassive black hole that you would have in the centre of a galaxy, say, but it's the actual in-spiral which creates a specific pattern of distortion or ripples in space-time that we can detect. And this pattern is quite characteristic and it means that we can subtract it from all of the other gravitational distortions uh, that are going on in the local universe.
4: Right. So what are the prospects for the future, Melanie? What's what's likely Um, to happen? We're going to be able to see these things... In the near future?
0: Well, the very great hope is that, yes, we will be able to see these things in the near future. Once we get our gravitational wave detectors online, we'll see the gravitational effects and we'll also simultaneously see the uh, gamma-ray bursts and optical flashes. And this will be quite good in terms of the number... We can predict the number of these things that are happening and and whatnot. And this tells us a bit more about what's happening in our universe and... uh, what's going
4: to happen to it in the end. Right, amazing stuff. Well, look, thank you very much for that, and I hope we can talk to you again in the future.
0: Yes, thank you indeed, Helen. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
4: And today we're privileged to go touring the Lucas Heights nuclear reactor in Sydney with Ian Wolfe. Ian, you're not even glowing in the
2: dark. What happened? Well, on Saturday, the Australian science communicators came up in force and they opened the gates for us at Lucas Heights. Well, and so you went
3: down there in sort of flying V formation and said, let us in, let us in. All right, all right, all right. Well,
2: we sort of came up in dribs and drabs one at a time, and Saturday's a bad day because cafeteria's closed, and mm. the tour was sort of over 11 to 2, so you missed lunch. Right. Does Ansto do
3: tours regularly? Like, does yes. Like, can anyone just go and have a wander around?
2: Um, you have to organise it with them, and you have to have a photo ID right. and closed shoes because it's a work site.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've got a missile under one arm, they'll be asking questions. They do
2: ask you to leave guns and knives right. at the door. That's nice. But it? It's just straight up. They don't say, "Do you have weapons?" Just leave your guns and knives
3: here. So, what was the purpose of the of the tour? Like, why Australian science communicators? Why were you wandering around?
2: we were wandering around to see what's going on with the new replacement nuclear reactor, and just what's happening at with uh, the technology at Ansto. What's going on there?
5: This. Sorry, there's something I've always wondered, is why do I need to replace it? What actually has gone wrong with the old one? Or what doesn't the old one do that the new one will? So did you get the answers? The old
2: one's pretty old, isn't it? The old one was established in the 1950s. So it's really, really old and well past the end of its use-by date. I see.
1: (laughs) It's also been too politically incorrect for a new government to commission a new reactor.
2: But they did. (laughs) Yeah, but it's a
3: replacement reactor, so that's okay. So, well, what's, what's yeah. there when, when they take you on the tour around Anza, around this replacement reactor? What do they show you, and what do they tell you?
2: Well, first off, there's the lobby, which has all Ooh. their little interactive <laughs> displays, most of which don't work at the moment. Mm-hmm. There's this giant elephant bird egg, which from Madagascar, and I asked, like, "What is this for? Why is this here?" This is like as big as three heads. It's huge, and apparently, it was found in the middle of Australia by some school kids and they sort of got it dated and it's ancient and it's like it's from madagascar what's it doing in the middle of australia and somehow this that they you know the old usual you know floating on debris from an <laughs> island to <laughs> australia somehow then into the inland and cool but they dated it and that's what the, one of the things they do there is right, radio dating right
3: so there is a reason for it to be there it's not just random
2: that's okay. what it turned so out so they to be. they
3: showed you the bailey working lobby yes where'd you go next
2: well, from there, we went to see where the replacement nuclear reactor parts were just the day before. Big empty room.
3: Um, the tour's going well so far. The yes. lobby isn't working, and now we've got an empty room.
2: Yes. Well, they're very enthusiastic. And by this point, you've gone past the razor wire and the electric fence. Cool. Past the guys who check that you're all the right number of people in the group. Nobody extra, nobody missing. Um, they were going to show us the parts for the reactor. They're they're trying to rush to get the thing built, so they're a little bit ahead of schedule, and they've moved all of the giant pieces of equipment out of the room where they are allowed to show us into where the construction is going on where we can't actually see anything because it's a work site and we don't have hard hats.
3: Right. So we've had the the not-working lobby, the empty room, which did have cool stuff in it but no longer has. What's next on this tour of (laughs) discovery?
2: Well, then we actually got to see a neutron beam research room. where So that was a bit cooler. There's lots of pipes going around and you could see where the neutron beam is being reflected and we had descriptions of the mirrors and the sort of work they do there. And that was a little bit more interesting.
3: So what sort of things do you do with a neutron beam down at Ansto?
2: Well, you go looking into sort of the nature of materials and you sort of find out what they're made of and, and how you can change the properties to make new stuff.
5: Cool. Like, you, you, is there a for instance? That sounds like alchemy to me. Can you ask about <laughs> lead and gold? Because I've been looking into that and haven't well, got very Well, that's exactly far. right.
2: Mm. Um, that's what they're doing, for example, in silicon chips. You can put in a neutron beam and you can transmute some of the atoms into different atoms so that you've got a really tiny, tiny difference. And you can make really highly sensitive um, cameras, for example, really image sensors and things like that that are really tiny because you're using neutron beams to transmute the atoms, changing it atom by atom.
3: So they're, they're showing you these applications, they're saying you know, neutron beams, changing atoms, this is all yes. fantastic stuff and it's important for the future of Australia. But I'm imagining a group of science communicators are going to turn around and hit them with the big question which is what do you say to all the people who turn to you and say it's nuclear, it's bad, we don't want it in our backyard, uh, get rid of it, don't build a new one?
2: Did they have a take on that? Did anyone? They sort of give did. Them that? They did. There were some very sceptical people. Um, they were going on about the, about the medical uses and the fact that the radioisotopes sort of only have a half life of twelve hours at the very most if you really super extend it, which means you can't import them before they're gone.
3: Um, from overseas. From you know? overseas, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And if you did, imp- if you could import them from overseas, if it was bad to produce them, then you're exporting the badness, and that's mm. kind of unethical. Mm. Um, plus, of course, they're very pro radiation because there's research that you know hormesis that shows that radiation stimulates the immune system. If you don't get enough radiation, you get sick. <coughs> so you need there's to get a. There's possible. not a the old zero tolerance. Doesn't it, if you think about it, saying an absolute zero level with no experimental evidence or clinical anything, just saying it should be zero because it sounds good, is what they've been doing. Well, it's not and actually possible it, anyway, no, given background levels. So. Yeah. Yes, so you're so. bit of radiation like anyway. It
5: sounds like um, parents who, asked, who are now asked to have their children play in the dirt so they get a bit exposed and get a bit used to it. Go on, Johnny, Sally, go on down and play at Anstow for a while. Yeah. Get your yeah. dose. I, I exactly. reckon sending my, th- well, my friends three and four year olds along to Anstow to get their <laughs> dose and play in That's the right. dirt uh, wouldn't go down so well with their parents.
2: Well, they've got the, the kangaroos there as well. There's little joeys in an enclosure. They promise they're not experimental subjects. They're actually just there because they're rescued from the roads and the they're, local they're wildlife rescue. two-headed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They're going to be released. that way. <laughs> Next to that egg out in the middle of the desert. It's kind of weird. Exactly. But oh, Sinrock dear. is being worked on as well, and we got to play with some Sinrock. Ah, Sinrock. Oh. Well, we
3: might, uh, we might come back to that one in just a second. When she left Maybe it's got something To do with cigarettes I guess she loved my dog Cause when it died she left And now I have to find myself
0: Another pet Every time
4: mellow little number was Tex Perkins with fine mess so earlier Ian Wolfe was telling us about his wander through Anstow. when you think of things nuclear of course you always think of nuclear waste and the problems of disposing of it now some years ago there was a really cool invention called Sinrock and it was Australian but that seems to have gone a bit quiet over the years but now suddenly it's back in the news Ian again what, what did
2: you find out? Well, Sinrock is a synthetic rock. It's a ceramic that's specially designed so that the crystal lattice traps radioactive waste atoms so that um, it doesn't leach out into water, so it doesn't get into the environment. So you can lock stuff up in synrock and bury it, and it stays there, and you can put a big fence around it, guard it, and you know that it's radioactive what, waste.
3: So, so you, you've got some, some radioactive stuff... What, you, you surround it in
2: synroc, and, yeah, and it won't a, get out. That's right. You you Basically, they've got a process where they heat it all up, mix it all up together, and it solidifies it, and it's one big lump of synroc that just sits there and doesn't do anything. So cool.
4: those radioactive atoms can't go anywhere. They're that's right. stuck.
2: That's right. right. They just stay there. Mm-hmm. And they stay there for a very, very, very long time, whereas the other only other technology around is glass, and glass slowly releases the radioactive materials into water and they're then into the environment, polluting things.
4: Well, this is obviously such a fantastic idea. So what's happened to it since it was invented?
2: Well, there's, there's good news and there's bad news. The, the good news is the British have bought rights to use the technology in Sellafield and they're going to store their nuclear waste with Sinroc. The bad news is the Americans, after everyone thought they were going to use it because they generate a lot of nuclear waste... Um, they're not going to because it's patented so highly that they'll have to pay us for it and they don't want to pay Australians for technology. They want to have the money stay in America.
4: Hmm. Could be a problem. Nice one. A test so
2: for the free trade
3: agreement. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was just about to say that this wonderful free trade agreement, when it comes down to it, uh, it's all very well and good, but if money were to come to Australia, no, 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 no. no we don't, they don't want any of that. Only, only.
4: No.
3: Mm. Yes,
4: and there were some other uh, slightly unsavoury News on the patents front this week wasn't there.
2: Well, this is wireless networking. Um, basically, CSIRO invented the 802.11 technology in 1996, and what does what what
4: 802.11 whatever that's, that's do your for you? That's average Wi-Fi, isn't that's, it? That's, that's
2: digital Wi-Fi sort of wireless networking. So your laptop can go to a hotspot and connect to the internet at reasonably high speed or connect to your home computer or your office network or your university network and you can sit in a park you can sit in a cafeteria or a coffee shop and all those great ads of people
3: people in business suits sitting under trees doing their work and every yeah, single right.
2: new laptop has this technology built in and, and it's all this the new specific palm tops.
3: technology isn't it because this it's is very specific you know, this is the standard
2: standard and we made it who knew that ieee you know, the International Engineers Organisation has you know, ratified it, given a special new number and everything, and it's, it's used everywhere. And the Australians invented it, and they've patented it, and they want a licence for it.
4: So has the money been rolling in for this? Not at all. So what is
5: it that you sell? What is it that's been patented? Like, what is it that they're not getting the money from?
2: The actual technology itself, the, the standards, the, the digital... The words
5: on the piece of paper, Keir.
3: The, so the mathematics, the, the yeah. arrangement of circuits, the So the people who've the made,
5: software. say, your um, new Apple laptop haven't paid, and the people who make your DSL modem haven't paid, That's and right. the people who build the big routers that sit at the top of the university tower haven't paid? Are these exactly. the people are paying?
2: Microsoft haven't paid, Dell, ah. there's a list of about six of major manufacturers that are actually attacking CSIRO. What's happened is that CSIRO said, "Um, you can pay us now because that's our patented technology that you're using. And everyone said no. They were in negotiations with Buffalo Technology, a Japanese-owned American company. And that's just recently fallen over and they've just said no. So... The Americans are taking us all to court. So why,
3: why are we hearing about this now? I mean, wireless has been around for a number of years now, particularly overseas. It's taken a while to get to us here in the country that bloody made this stuff. But why are we only hearing about this now? Surely if CSIRO hasn't been paid, it would have turned around and gone,
2: oi, give us money. Well, the way you do things corporately is you go and talk to people before you take them to court and you negotiate what the rate might be. And then after negotiations break down, you, you have further negotiations, and then you take them to court. And then you have to wait for the court to hear it, and there's all this sort of legal stuff, and it takes time. And it's only really... I mean, it sounds like it's nine years, but I guess wireless has only really taken off in the last, what, four, five years.
5: But we have had different versions. There's A, B, and G, according to the different things I've bought over the years. <laughs> um You're getting so, the whole set. So... <laughs> It's almost a case where CSIRO should have held on to G and not let anyone have it until they paid up, kind of like extortion. Well, Mm. the problem is
2: when you patent something, you publish the details of how to make it and how it works. So anybody who visits the patent office website or gets their newsletters, whatever, can read how to do it. The problem is that when they actually implement it and sell the technology, they're supposed to pay you because that's what patents are for, and then CSIRO puts it back into research. Mm. It all gets cheaper. Mm. So Mm. patents are, are a good thing for a short time.
4: That's all from us in this edition of Discovery. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us via email at discovery at 2ser.com. That's discovery at 2ser.com. Or check out our website, www.2ser.com forward slash discovery. This week's ramble through the halls of science was brought to you by Marion Carruthers, Keir Smith, Ian Wolfe, and me, Helen Sim, with Chris Stewart on the knobs and levers. Discovery is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Helen Sim. Join us for more science next week on Discovery.